Amen. Praise the Lord. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Last chapter of Hebrews. We've been here for a while. We won't get through it tonight. Uh, we'll try to get about halfway through it. Maybe uh, if we if we do real well, we'll get through verse 15. Not sure we will, though. And uh, then we'll conclude it uh, uh, next week, uh, next Wednesday night. By the time we get to chapter 13, uh, if, if you're um, a commentary reader, and I'm not, um, but most uh, commentators, by the time they get to chapter 13, say now Paul's just, or the, the, well, not all, everybody doesn't agree that it's Paul, but they say the, uh, the author of the book of Hebrews is now just signing off, and so this is just a cursory thanks for listening speech, and, uh, and, and nothing could be further from the truth. Because uh, Paul has uh, systematically, for 12 chapters now, identified and, and um, identified who we are in Christ. He's identified the, the, the main theme over and over again that uh, Jesus is better than anything else. He talks about being better than the priesthood. He talks about being better than uh, Abraham, better than Moses, better than, than everything that uh, the law of Moses and everything that Judaism was uh, predicated on. And by the time he gets to chapter 12, it ends chapter 12, uh, where the translators made the end of chapter 12, he's talking about judgment. Now, when I say judgment, he's not talking about judgment on the church. But he refers to an Old Testament scripture where it says that uh, God will shake all nations. He'll shake both the heavens and the earth. Now, as he does that, he concludes by saying, but we have a kingdom. So he's saying that God's going to destroy something, but not us or our kingdom. He says, we have a kingdom. Uh, verse 28 of ch- chapter 12, it says, wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. So he's not saying that God's going to shake the church. Well, what is he talking about then? He, he finishes up with the next verse and he says, for God's a consuming fire. A lot of times people will take that verse out of context and say, well, God's a consuming fire. And they don't really explain it, but they kind of leave the implication that if you do the wrong thing, boy, you're going to be toast. And that's not what he's talking about at all. God is a consuming fire, but what does he consume? God is a judge, but what does he judge? Does he judge his people? No, that was the whole reason that Jesus came, so that you and I could escape judgment. Well, what is he judging then? Well, he's judging, he's talking about the judgment that God brings through the shaking. What he's going to judge is Judaism. Now, what does Paul know? The book of Hebrews was written uh, between 65 and 68 A.D. We know that in 70 A.D., the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. We know that Jesus prophesied this. We know that Jesus prophesied and, and told, well, he was prophesying. They may not have known that he was, but he told his disciples uh, as they were going into the temple right toward the end of Jesus' ministry, just before he went to the cross, the disciples looked at, the, at Herod's temple and said, oh, isn't this a beautiful place? Well, it wasn't a beautiful place to God because it wasn't built by the people or their desire to have a house, or for God to have a house, the, the Herod's temple was built for politics. It was built by Herod so that he could gain a political position with the Romans and still curry favor with the, gen, with the, uh, with the Jews. And so the Jewish leaders, they thought, this is great. They, here's Herod, an ungodly leader, governor, ruler. Here he's an ungodly man, but he built us a temple. Isn't this great? Well, God said, no, that's not the temple I want. Not at all. God was pleased when the temple was built by the offerings of his people, the free will offerings of his people. This has nothing to do with the people. So what does Jesus do? Jesus looks around at Herod's temple and snubs his nose at it and says there's coming a day where there's not one stone going to be left on another. 
Now, folks, if you look at the historical accounts, and Josephus gives us a, a, a real good uh, uh, historical record, and, and not just him but others as well, about what happened when uh, Titus, uh, the Roman governor, came and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D. The reason that there's not one stone left upon another is because Herod had infused gold in between the stones as he put it up, as he constructed it. And so the reason they took it apart stone by stone is to get the gold in between the stones. Gold was mixed in with the mortar. And so literally not one stone was left upon another because if they left two stones stacked, they're leaving gold behind. Well, what does Paul know? Does Paul know that this, that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed in 70 A.D.? If he knows that, why didn't he tell him that? Does he know that it's coming? Well, we certainly know that Paul was not a follower of Jesus' ministry, so he was nowhere to be found when Jesus prophesied about the destruction of the temple. None of the disciples, none of his followers knew when it was going to be. They were interested. When are these things going to happen? And Jesus tried to explain things to them about the end. He, the only thing, the closest they got was this generation won't pass away before this stuff starts happening. But they didn't know when. Nobody had timing on it. What did Paul know? Why is Paul now shifting to God shaking the heavens and the earth, but don't worry, the church won't be shaken? Why is he talking about this? Because, folks, everything about, well, uh, let me go a little bit further with that. How would Paul know even what Jesus said? If he wasn't a follower of Jesus, how would he know what Jesus prophesied? Well, we know Luke was part of Paul's company. And in Luke 21, verse 6, Luke gives the account of when Jesus told the disciples that the temple would be destroyed. So he certainly, since Luke wrote his account before the book of Hebrews was written, we certainly know that he would know from Luke's research. Luke wasn't part of the disciples' company. He was a Gentile, so he couldn't have been part of uh, even the 120 or those uh, the multitude that followed Jesus around. So he came to this information by the Holy Ghost, obviously through research. He's talking to people that were there, and he was inspired by the Holy Ghost to, to put together a summary, what we know of as the Gospel of Luke. Paul would certainly know what this is about. Paul would certainly be aware of all the information. Paul's ministry was not about what happened in Jesus' day. Paul's ministry was about who we are in Christ because of what Jesus did. And that's everything that he's trying to share. He spent 12 chapters now explaining the doctrine of who we are because of what Jesus did. That's everything about the book of Hebrews. But why is he talking about destruction? Does he know it's coming? Does he know that within two to five years, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed? Well, he certainly didn't specify it, but he had to have had something by the Holy Ghost. Had to have had something by the Holy Ghost. Now, God's a consuming fire, meaning God is going to consume Judaism. Now, remember what he's talked about. He started off God in in times past and in diverse ways spoke unto his people through the prophets as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Has in these last days spoken to us by his son. That's Hebrews 1, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. What's he talking about? First thing he starts talking about is time periods. What's he saying? He's saying God ended the Judaism, the Judaic time period. And it'll end in 70 A.D. once and for all. Now, why? Is God mad at the Jews? Is God getting back to them, back at them for putting Jesus on the cross? No. But at the time this is written, and Paul will even say that further on in chapter 13, at the time that this is written, people are still offering sacrifices in the temple. Would the sacrifices ever have ended had Jerusalem and the temple not been destroyed in 70 A.D.? Do you realize the conflict that there would be? The same conflict that was taking place then would be the conflict that would be taking place now. If the Jews were still sacrificing, offering animal sacrifices in Jerusalem today and the church was trying to exist side by side. 
God had to do something to show one thing had ended and, and a new thing had begun. You never see an overlap in any of the dispensations of the time periods in the Old Testament. Never. There's no overlap. There's an end and a beginning. Time and time again. That's what the whole heroes of faith were about. In chapter 11. The end of one, the beginning of another. God never changed. He still required faith. He's still the same from time period to time period. But he dealt with his people in a different way. And there were different operations required of the people in different dispensations. So what's the dispensation of the church? The dispensation of the church is Jesus has finished the work. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. That's why Christianity is better than Judaism. Because you don't have to do all the stuff, the ritualistic stuff, to get your way in with God. Are you with me? Okay. Let's go a little bit further with that. What does that mean, therefore, for the church? If Paul is making the point, and he has over and over again, he's made the point, the priesthood is over. I'm sure that was a real blessing for the high priest to be reading or hearing this being read. He's saying, you don't need a high priest anymore. You have Jesus as your high priest, right? So he's telling them again and again in different ways. He's tied them up in knots for 12 chapters. There is no way he uses, Paul was a master. He used certain things that they could, they could agree with. He said, for example, he said, well, you remember Esau? The Jews said, yeah, nobody likes Esau. He messed things up. He said, you're Esau. You're doing the same thing. So he got them to agree on certain points and then he tied them up in knots by saying, this is, that represents you. That's what you're trying to do with going back to the old stuff. Trying to have things your way instead of looking at eternal things. Over and over and over and over again. So now he's talking about destruction. He's talking about the destruction that we know of in 70 AD is the destruction of the temple and the destruction of uh, Jerusalem. Why? Because we have a kingdom that can't be moved. Everything in chapter 13 is going to be about the unmovable kingdom. In other words, it's about because now we have been made kings and priests unto our high priest Jesus. Everything about chapter 13 is... How do you live as a priest? Now, under the Old Covenant, the only thing they knew about priests up until this point in time, under the Old Covenant, priests were priests by birth, not by character. And there were a lot of wicked priests. But they were still priests because they were born into it. They were born of the right people, and so that was their job. Now, you didn't have an 8 to 5 job as a priest. You were a priest 24 hours a day, all the days of your life. Now, in that, we have similarities because in Christ, you're not a priest just during your daytime hours. You're not a priest when you come to church. You're not a priest, you know, only in specific time periods of your life. You're a priest 24 hours a day, all the days of your life. You never stop being a priest. Now, what does a priest do? The number one job of the priest is to offer sacrifices. Number one job of the priest is to offer sacrifices. So he's going to talk about from chapter, from uh, verse 10 through verse 19, he's going to talk about the sacrifices of the Christian life. Because we're still priests, we still make sacrifices, but different sacrifices. So he's telling them, and Paul does this over and over again in his letters, he talks to them about doctrine, and then he ends up with, here's the practical application for your life. Now let me talk to you a little bit about legalism. When we talk about the law of Moses, I'm not really tempted to try to keep the law of Moses. Are you? I've never been tempted to offer an animal sacrifice. Just not my thing. It's not an issue for me. 
And so when we talk about Judaism, it's real easy just to take the situation that Paul was addressing and not put it in a present-day context. Now, as I said, I didn't grow up as a Jew. I don't know anything about Judaism except what I read in the Bible. Thank goodness we're out from under the law. You can still go back and learn from the law and learn from what the things of the law represent that Jesus fulfilled so we can still learn from the law. But thank God we're not under it. Amen? But I did grow up in a church that knew something about legalism. Dear Lord, did they know something about legalism. And it was all about what you had to do. Now, none of it had to do with Moses. None of it had to do with Moses, but it had to do with praying a certain amount of time a day, reading your Bible a certain amount of time a day, witnessing to a certain amount of uh, number of people each year. I mean, they had me so tied up in knots trying to do things that were right and not do things that they said were wrong. In other words, religion... Present-day religion and legalism, the legalism that always accompanies religion has replaced the law of Moses for the present-day church, at least for the most part. I guess maybe if you're a Christian in Israel, there may be still some things you deal with. I don't know. But that certainly doesn't apply to us here. Now, folks, I've been out of a legalistic church for 35 years. It's easy for me to, to, to dismiss legalism, but a lot of people aren't there. A lot of people, and I remember when I first came out of a legalistic church, it took me some time. It took some time to figure out, wait a minute, you mean I don't have to do this? I don't have to read my Bible so much every day? No, you don't. Well, when I found out I didn't have to do it, then I wanted to do it. It was the the, the being forced to do it, the the idea that if you don't do it, you're not going to be in God's good favor. That was the thing I had a hard time with. And it wasn't an attitude thing It was because I tried. But man, when I try to read my Bible for an hour a day, I'd get five minutes in and fall asleep. The devil's always there to try to stop you from doing something that he tells you would make you okay with God, and then he'll try to condemn you because you didn't do it. It's just the way it works. So the legalism part was a real issue for me for a while. But once I found out, there's nothing you can do. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like... um, It's kind of like we're trying to earn brownie points with God by the things that we do. Well, think of it like a poker game. Jesus went all in and won. He's got all the chips. You can't win any chips. It doesn't matter what you do. You can't win any of God's chips. Jesus has got them all. So if you want any chips, you've got to get in him. If you're going to play the Christian game, and I don't mean that in a, in a derogatory way. If you're going to live the life that God wants you to live, you're going to have to have chips. And the only way you can do that is in him. Because he's got them all. He won the world poker tour for all of mankind for eternity. There'll never be another chip. In order for you to have chips so that you can do the works of Jesus, so that you can imitate him in life, you got to get in him. You can't earn them on your own. You can't go buy them. You can't do anything to gain them. He's got them all. Well, when I came to that understanding, long before the World Poker Tour hit TV, when I came to that understanding, it freed me up. And it took me several years to get there, uh, several years to get there. And I got, in, got a hold of it in certain areas before I got it in other areas. But it's all the same no matter what the area is. I found out when I didn't have to pray an hour a day, I'd pray more than an hour a day. I found out when I didn't have to read my Bible an hour a day, I'd read my Bible much more than an hour a day. I found out that meditating on the Word was even better than, than reading the Word of God, and I can do that no matter whatever else I'm doing. 
I'd take little three by five note cards with me with, uh, with scriptures written on them. And I'd pull them out of my pocket several times a day. And I'd look at them and I'd read them and I'd meditate on them. And then I, once you get to the place where you know what they say, then I can think on them while I'm walking. I can think on them while I'm driving. I can think on them while I'm working a job. I can think on them while I'm doing other things. I can meditate on those things. And I found out that was even more beneficial than reading the Bible. And that's easy. You're just focusing your attention, focusing your heart, focusing your, 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 your mind on what the word says. And the more and more you do that, the more and more it becomes a part of your spirit. And then it becomes something that you want to do. It creates an incentive because you see a change in you and then you want to do it more and more and more. So now it's not a matter of, oh my goodness, do I have to read the Bible? I want to read the Bible. I look for every opportunity to do it. Well, isn't that better than have to? That's the way it's supposed to be. That's what chapter 13 is all about. He's saying since you're in Christ, since Judaism has been done away with, since you can't work your way to God, since there is no legalism that will ever gain you anything with God, no matter what you think, no matter what you've been taught, no matter what that's been done away with, therefore, here's how you ought to live. As a priest, here's what living a life of a priest looks like. Okay, you ready? Chapter 13, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. First thing about living a life as a priest under God is you're going to have to walk in brotherly love. Now, this is going to be important to the the church, the Christians in Jerusalem, because they've got other people trying to pull them away. They've got people that are that are persecuting them because they want to get them back under legalism. So he's going to he's telling them, resist the going back under the legalism, resist the rituals and stuff of the law. But you got to maintain love while you're doing it. That's sometimes tough. It's easy to love people that love us. Not so easy to love people that are against us. Well, why are they against them? Because they don't know any better. Because they're rejecting the truth that they're being told. So what do we do? Curse them? Now, Jesus said, pray for those that despitefully use you and persecute you. Jesus said, do good to those that do do you harm. He said, bless those that curse you. That's what he's talking about here. He's saying, first and foremost, being a priest unto God. Being in Christ means you're going to have to walk in brotherly love. You're going to have to let that continue. You're going to have to make your love walk your first priority. And isn't it interesting that the first thing that he starts with is love? Lots of things he could talk about. This is not a comprehensive list, but he picks out some important things that really will help you live a normal life. Well, he's not talking about something super spiritual here. He's not talking about something that's going to make you in the twilight zone of, of God, you know. Like some Christians think it, that spirituality is. He's going to talk about real practical stuff. First of all, let brotherly love continue. Verse 2, second thing he mentions is, be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Folks, here's what he's saying. He's saying because you're a priest unto God, you're free. You're free in in verse 1 to love. You're free in verse 2 to show hospitality. He's talking about your freedom because you're in Christ. This is a totally new concept for those that have been bound by Judaism. And now those Jews who are trying to come back and bring the church back under bondage. He's saying you're free. You're free. So you're free to love. You're free to show hospitality. There's a lot of things we could talk about the angels. Maybe we'll do a study on angels one of these days. A lot of times, uh, uh, well, in for example, in uh, Acts chapter 12, I think it is, uh, Peter is uh, taken captive. He's thrown in jail. They're going to kill him the next day, and he goes to sleep. Could you? How could he? 
Well, one thing that Jesus said, Jesus had already told him about the end of his life. He said, when you're old, people are going to carry you to places you don't want to go and take you around to places that are in situations that you might not choose. Well, he's not old yet. So he goes to sleep. He's got a promise from God. He said, when I'm old, Peter, there's no way Peter qualifies as old. So he went to sleep. He had to have known that what uh, their plans, the, the, uh, um, uh, the, the, Jews, the religious leaders that threw him in jail and what their plans were to to execute him the next day does not fit in with what God promised him. So he goes to sleep. During the night, an angel comes beside him. An angel shows up in the jail. Peter is so asleep, the angel has to kick him in the side. He says, get up. Peter gets up. As he gets up, the chains fall off his hands. He says, come with me. They get to the iron gate. The angel shows up, walks up to the iron gate, and it must have been one of those automatic things for God because it just opens right up. There's the precursor to those electronic doors at the grocery store. All you need is an angel walking with you, and there they go. Takes him through the whole thing, takes him through the whole jail, gets him on the outside, and at the outside, the angel disappears, and Peter says something so profound. He says, I think that was an angel. Peter was deep. He didn't know. He's seeing supernatural things. He's seeing miraculous things, but he didn't know. That's what he's talking about here. He's saying you ought to treat everybody like they're a visitor from God. You're free to show hospitality. Treat everyone like they're a visitor from God. Some of them might be. Verse 3, what else are we free to do? Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them and them which suffer adversity as bring your, and as being yourselves also in the body. What's he saying? He's saying you're free to pray. Now, let me ask you a question. What is praying for somebody going to do as far as getting them out of prison? Well, the one thing that the Bible says in Acts chapter 12 about Peter being put in jail, it says just previously to that, Jesus, I mean James, the brother of John, was beheaded. He was put in jail, and they did kill him. It says Peter was put in prison, but prayer was made for him by the church. It indicates, I, I don't know if I'm reading something into this that's not there. You decide for yourself. But it doesn't say a word about the church praying for James, and he got killed. But it says Peter, when he went into prison, the church prayed for him. Did that have anything to do with God delivering him? Well, I don't know. Sure might have. So what's it saying here? It's saying your prayers work. Whether you think they work, whether you feel like they're going to work, your prayers work. As a priest unto God, you're free to pray and expect divine results. Verse 4. Now he's going to get real practical. What are we free to do now? In verse 4, it says, Marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. He's saying sex and marriage should be free. Now the word bed is a real bad translation. It's literally the word sex. It's the sex act. And so I'm sure some monk somewhere looked at that and said, oh, I can't say that. Let's use bed. But literally what it's saying is that you're free. Now, folks, the freedom he's talking about here is freedom from legalism. He's saying just like religion shouldn't hinder your love walk, religion shouldn't hinder your hospitality, religion or legalism shouldn't hinder your prayer life, religion or legalism shouldn't hinder your sex life. He says marriage is honorable unto all. Now, Paul is talking about this as a part of the priesthood's lifestyle. He's saying as a priest unto God, your marriage, your sex life in marriage should be free from legalism and bondage. Why? Because 
Marriage is honorable unto all. There is no sex act that is degrading. There is no sex act that is humiliating. There is no sex act that is dishonoring in marriage. But notice the contrast. But whoremongers and adulterers, he'll judge. Now, what do married people do in sex that whoremongers and adulterers don't do? Same sex act. Everybody does the same stuff. What's the difference? Marriage. Pure and simple. I got to stop and tell you a story here. A number of years ago, there was a family that had been coming to our church for a couple of years and um, hadn't been married a real long time. They, you know, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years, maybe at the time that they came to our church or at the time they talked to me. So they'd been married for four or five years before they, when they started coming. Young couple. And uh, and she, she said to me one day after church, she said, I need to come talk to you. Okay, no problem. Good family in the church, you know, regular attenders. And uh, so I said, yeah, that's fine. Just call the office and set something up, and I'll, I'll be glad to talk to you. So I come into the office, into the conference room. It's just me and her, but we've got glass there where everybody can see and all that kind of stuff. So it's a, it was a private setup. So we sit down, and she just jumps right out there. She says, my husband wants me to perform a certain sect act and called it by name. That's her opening line. Oh, all right. So I, I tried to be cool, try not to show any reaction, tried to be cool. And I said, uh, okay. I said, how do you feel about that? She said, well, can I be honest with you? I said, well, this works better if you are. She said, well, it kind of excites me. I said, okay, what's the problem? She said, it's wrong. Oh, I see. How do you know it's wrong? Well, I've heard preachers say that it's wrong. Okay. So what are you going to do? I don't know. That's why I'm talking to you. So I took her over here to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. I said, read that to me. I wouldn't have dared read this scripture to her. It's not my business. It's not up to me to tell somebody else what's okay in their sex life. Or anybody else either. It's not okay for a preacher to stand up and say what's wrong in a marriage couple's sex life either. So she said, she read it, marriage is honorable unto all and the bed is undefiled. And I said, now that word for bed is the, literally the word that means sex act. Not just sex in general, but the sex act. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. She said, so what am I going to do? What does that mean? I said, read it again. I got her to read it four or five times. She got frustrated at me because she's reading it so many times and I'm not telling her anything. Now, what she wanted me to do was side in with her and say, yeah, that's wrong. You need to tell your husband, you know, get saved or something. You know, because only a reprobate would have wanted that sex act, you know. And that's the religious or legalistic idea behind sex. So she read that and she said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Marriage is honorable unto all. And I explained to her, I said, most translations say unto all things. Where it says marriage is honorable unto all, it literally says marriage is honorable unto all things. And the marriage bed or the sex act in marriage is undefiled. She says, wait a minute. She said, that's saying that there's nothing that we do in our sex life that's dishonoring. I said, is that what that means? She said, yeah, that's what that means. She said, and where it says the the sex act or the bed is undefiled, she said, there's nothing that defiles. She said, defiled is the very word that I heard the preacher use about the sex act. 
She said it defiles the woman. She said the Bible says that it doesn't. I said, is that what it says? She said, Pastor Mike, you're not helping me. I said, I'm trying to. But I'm trying to tell you, I'm trying to get you to see what the Bible says for itself rather than telling you what I think. She said, all right, well, here, here's what I'm going to do then. I'm going to tell you what I think, and you tell me if that's what the Bible's saying. I said, that's a good plan. Let's go. She said, the Bible is saying that if I do this with my husband, it's not dishonoring to me, and it doesn't defile either one of us or our marriage. I said, that's what the Bible says. She stopped, and she said, you know what? She said, I was embarrassed to tell you that I was excited at the idea. She said, that's my heart trying to tell me to do what my husband wants, isn't it? I said, you think? Think maybe that's it? She said, oh, I know it's it. You're just being obstinate now. (laughs) That was it. She picked up her stuff. That was the end of our conversation. She picked up her stuff and she left on a mission. (laughs) A couple of days later, she comes to church with her husband. Noticed her husband and her were there. I noticed they had big smiles on their face, you know, everything. It looks like it's good, but they always looked like they had smiles on their face. And so at the end of the service, she walked her husband up the, up the aisle to talk to other people. She was so sly. I watched her the whole time. We were over, way over at the other building at that time. And, uh, at the, the school building, I think it was. Yeah, it was. We were in the first school building. And so this was early on in the church. And so uh, uh, she came, and she kind of walks her husband up, and they stop, and they talk to some people. And I can see she's working her way up over to where I am. She's bringing him up to where I am. And so she gets up to the front. I'm standing down here in front talking to people and shaking hands and doing stuff like that. And so she gets up there to her husband, finally leads him, kind of pulls him away from the chairs up to where I am, and he sees where finally sees where she's going, and he panics. He gets this wide-eyed look on her face, and she walks up, and she doesn't say a word. She just goes... Thumbs up, just like that. She sees, uh, he sees what she does, and that guy turned every color in the rainbow. You have never seen a guy so embarrassed in your life. But they left, and let me tell you something. That guy from that point forward saw the importance and the relevance of church for today. He became a giver in the church. Up until that point, it was kind of sporadic. They'd give a little bit here and there. But I'm telling you what, it changed everything about him. To this day, he can't look me in the eye. But it changed their lives. Folks, the Bible is saying that you're free. And sex should be a freeing experience in marriage. Verse 5. What else are we free to do as priests unto God? Let your conversation, that means manner of life, be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. We're free to be content now, folks, I'm going to, I'm going to read to you from uh, Philippians chapter 4. Turn back a couple of pages to Philippians chapter 4. You can look with me if you want to. You don't have to if you don't. But Paul says, talking about himself, he says um, in verse 11, Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, he said, not that I speak. Nah, well, I guess I better back up. Verse 10, he said, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me has flourished again. In other words, uh, wherein you were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. What that literally means is you guys made commitments to help me, but then you didn't fulfill your commitments. You came on tough times, and so you weren't able to fulfill your commitments, but now you've gone back and you've made good on what you promised. That's what he's going to rejoice about. Not because of himself, but he'll tell you why. He said, I'm rejoicing the Lord because of this, 
Verse 11, not that I speak in respect of want. In other words, he's saying, I'm not happy because you gave to me. Although I'm sure they're giving to him helped him. He said, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Other translations say I know how, I know how to operate when I don't have anything. I know how to operate when I have an abundance. I know how to abound everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Folks, I want you to understand something. He is saying very specifically that contentment is learned. He said, I have learned in every respect to be content. I've learned how to be content when I don't have anything. I've learned how to be content when I have plenty. How has he learned that? He learned that he can do all things in Christ, through Christ Jesus, who strengthens him. That's how you learn to be content. You learn to be content by trusting God, not in the circumstances. By trusting in God and not in the resources you have in your pocket or the money you've got in your bank account. Now back to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 again. Let your manner of life be without covetousness. The word covetousness is literally the word love of money. It means love of money. Let your lifestyle be without the love of money. And be content. Learn like Paul did, that you can do all things through Christ. Be content with such things as you have, for he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Now, folks, remember where we started with this. Paul seems to know, or at least he's saying by the Holy Ghost, he's giving them warnings by the Holy Ghost, Jerusalem is toast. It's going to be destroyed in a very short period of time. So he says, learn to be content with what things soever you have, for he has said. Now, this is, this is the, it's understandable, but it's the worst translation in the whole Bible. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. That is the worst translation, certainly in the New Testament, probably in the whole Bible. Now, the reason that it's a mistranslation is because you can't translate what it really says and make sense in the English language. This phrase, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, is not a Bible quote. It's a composition of five different scriptures, five different Old Testament scriptures. Paul puts five different Old Testament scriptures together and comes up with a a phrase, a sentence fragment that has six negatives. How do you translate something that's got six negatives? We know in the English language every, every negative cancels out the last one. If you got a double negative, it means it's positive. How do you translate a six negative sentence? It doesn't make sense. Here's what it literally reads. He says, let your conversation or your manner of life be without covetousness, be without love of money. And be content with such things as you have, for he has said, I will, ne- I will know not never leave thee, I will know not never forsake thee. I will know not never leave thee. I will know not never forsake thee. Why is he saying that? He's saying God doesn't leave us no matter what. Why is he telling them that God won't leave them? Why is he saying so emphatically that there is nothing that can happen that will cause God to leave them? Because their money is going to leave them in a very short period of time. The destruction of Jerusalem wipes everybody out. This might be instructive for the day that we live in. We've seen just here this last week 
where over in Cyprus, they confiscated 10% of everybody's bank accounts. People over here say, well, that could never happen. Folks, here we call it Proposition 30. <laughs> Don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself that the devil is not big as big here in America as he is over in Cyprus. Don't kid yourself that the, be- the devil is not as destructive in America as he is in Europe, in the Eurozone. You better think again. Well, what are we going to do? What if they confiscate everything we have in the banks? God said, I will know not never leave thee. I will know not never forsake thee. Verse 6. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Now, folks, with the understanding that in two to five years, these people are going to be overrun and their city is going to be destroyed and most of them are going to have to run for their lives from the city. What meaning would this have to them at that point in time? See, we look at it as just a promise from God. Oh, thank God he'll never leave me nor forsake me. This is real life for them in just a very short period of time. And Paul's warning them by the Holy Ghost. Does he know he's warning them this way? Does he know what's coming within the short period of time? I have no idea. But God does. And God's giving them warning, giving them fair warning. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man will do unto me. Folks, that needs to be your attitude in the last days. Because I don't know what the government's going to do. I don't have any confidence in them. I know the people running the government, people making decisions, are showing more and more of their true nature. And it's not to have your best interests in mind. So what are we going to do? What if the, what if the economy collapses? God said, I will know not never leave thee. I will know not never forsake thee. If the economy collapses, we still got God. If money leaves us, God won't. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Don't be afraid of a run on the banks. Don't be afraid of an economic collapse. And if God tells you to do something to prepare for it, great, do it. But don't be afraid. Because no matter whatever else you may lose, you won't lose him. Verse 7, what else are we free to do? Notice it says, Remember them that have the rule over you who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow considering the end of their conversation. We are free to submit to to spiritual authority. Now, what does he mean here? Compare this to verse 17. He's going to go further and talk about verse 17 in uh, connection with our sacrifices as priests. But it says, obey them that have the rule over you. Notice that phrase, have the rule over you. Same exact phrase is in verse 7. He's talking about spiritual authority. He's talking specifically about the pastors in Jerusalem. Now, we know James is a pastor in Jerusalem at this point in time, but it would be foolish for us to think with as large as we know that the church grew in the first three chapters, or, well, five chapters of the book of Acts, that there's just one church. Where we know that the the church has grown to to 8,000 people, plus those that the Lord added to the church daily. Where are they going to meet? You can't have a church of 8,000 people in that day and time and, and, and have one service to get everybody in. Where are they meeting? Well, the pattern seems to be that church is met from house to house, which means you've got to have a lot of other pastors. Probability is they've got house churches. Now, maybe they come together from time to time and, and, and fellowship together or something like that. That's very possible. But there's not just one church building. They didn't build some mega church in Jerusalem and say this is the church at Jerusalem. 
So where he says, obey them that have the rule over you, he's talking about the, the, the plethora, the number of pastors that are there in the church of Jerusalem. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they do it with joy, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable to you. In other words, they're going to watch over your souls, not your spirits. Your spirit belongs to God. But pastors watch over the souls of the people. Now, why is that? Well, the soul is specifically defined in Scripture as the mind, the will, and the emotions. I try to teach you the word, which is Paul's number one uh, admonition to the ministers in Acts chapter 20, that uh, the pastors at Ephesus, first pastor's conference he ever had, only one we have record of that Paul had. He said, feed the flock of God over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers. My number one job is to feed you. Number one job is to feed you. So the best thing I can do for me is to take care of myself so that I've got something to feed you. Right? Now, how can I watch over your souls just by feeding you the word? Because it's feeding you the word that causes your mind to be renewed. It causes you to bring your will in line with God's will, because that's what the word of God does. It identifies what God's will is. And then third, to show you how to govern your emotions with the word of God. Now, can I make those things happen? Not a chance. Not a chance. I can simply tell you the truth. I can simply teach you the truth. I can simply feed you the word of God and encourage you to renew your mind to the word, to submit your will to God's will or uh, train your will to God's will and train your emotions to be governed by the truth. That's as far as I can do it. Now, if you refuse to submit to that, then I'm doing the same job, but I'm doing it grievously rather than with joy. The ones that I have joy over, the ones that accept the word of God and take hold of it and make it apply in their lives. Now, back to verse 7. It says, remember them that have the rule over you. That does not mean remember Pastor Mike. Oh, yeah, I remember him. That's kind of like saying remember the Alamo. What in the world did that ever mean? That's not what this is talking about. Remember Pastor Mike. That's not what it means. The word remember means to concentrate on. What he's saying is very simply this. Give your attention to the truth that's being taught you. doesn't mean concentrate on my what I, clothes I wear or the way I live or the car I drive or anything like that. It means concentrate on the truth that God is giving me to share with you. Why? So that I can watch over your souls with joy. So that you can be doers of the word. So that you can grow up in the things of God. Now notice what else he says. Concentrate on them which have the rule over you who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow. It doesn't say follow my lifestyle. It says follow my faith. So many times people try to look like other people. They try to act like other people. I used to try to walk like Brother Hagin. What a waste of time. Brother Hagin used to stand on the platform with his toes hanging off and twiddle his thumbs. Yeah, there's a real anointing for that. What good does that do? Nothing. Now, I found over years, I've picked up some of his characteristics just because I've been in so many of his services, but I'm not trying to do anything. I have people say, you sound like Brother Hagin. Well, that's a great compliment to me, but I'm not trying to sound like anybody. I quit trying to sound like somebody else, and I just try to sound like myself and make sense. I get further that way. But it says you should have someone, someone in spiritual authority over you should have faith that you can follow. And it says it should produce in their lives whose faith follow considering the end of their lifestyle, the end of their manner of life. In other words, follow somebody's faith that produces results or fruit. Jesus said to the disciples, I have called you and ordained you to to bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. 
It amazes me. How many people submit themselves to people that they don't know? I've had people come to church and say, Pastor Mike, we've just come to church. We've just visited a couple of times. And, and you know, we love the church. We like the teaching. and But we're not sure if this is where God wants us to be. What should we do with our tithes? I always tell them, bank them. Set them aside. Put them somewhere where you won't use them. But put them aside. And then when you find the church that God wants you to be in, then you'll be able to pay your tithes and do it cheerfully. This idea of spreading tithes around to whatever church you visit, that's nuts. What do you know about what you're helping somebody to do? I'm not going to use my money that way. You do what you want to with yours, but not mine. I'm going to put my money somewhere where I know is producing fruit and I know that I can trust the person that's making the decisions on the money. That's just me. So he says, remember them which have the rule over you who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow considering the end of their conversation or the end of their manner of life. In other words, follow the somebody whose faith produces results. Follow somebody like that. Don't follow somebody if you don't see their results. And it takes a while to figure out what the results of somebody's life are or the results of their ministry is. Because you can make look, things look like one thing on the outside and they're a totally different thing in reality. I can show you people that look like they've got great ministry results and there is no character and integrity in that ministry whatsoever. How are you going to know that? It's going to take time to figure it out. What do we do? Well, you can hear the teaching and judge the teaching, but don't submit yourself to somebody until you know who you're giving yourself over to. Yeah, but 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 Pastor Mike, look at all the ministers that have failed. Now, remember who he's talking to. He's talking to some people that have pulled away from the church altogether. And he's trying to encourage them. Submit yourself to someone who has spiritual authority over you. I have never found anybody, and I know this is a popular thing, especially out here in California, but I have never found anybody that says, well, I, you know, I just don't believe in organized religion. I just stay home and Jesus is my pastor. I've never found anybody that has ever claimed that that is stable. Everybody I've ever seen in that situation has got some weird goofball idea of doctrine. Their revelations from the Lord don't stand the scrutiny of church. So they have to stay home by themselves where nobody can argue with their doctrine. And they get further and further and further off track. Yeah, but, but, but what about people? What about ministers that have failed? What about those that have submitted themselves to ministers or ministries and, and those ministers have failed? Paul knows that's going to be the issue. He knows that's going to be the question because, folks, no matter what gifts somebody's got, the best thing you can say about them is they're imperfect. I'm going to make mistakes. I've already made a bunch of them. I try not to repeat the ones I've already made, but I'm going to make mistakes. And, you know, it's a, it's a funny thing because so often people pick and choose churches. They pick and choose pastors and stuff like that based on what they agree with. And it and it, it, I have seen time after time after time that there are things where I know, folks, I know the difference between me saying something and the Holy Ghost giving me something to say. You may not know, but I know. And there are times where I know I'm saying something for the purpose of cutting across somebody's field crossways. I know as soon as I say certain things that I am going to just absolutely bury somebody as far as their belief or their doctrine or their preference is concerned. And I, and, and honest to goodness, it's, it's kind of like Smith Wigglesworth. Wigglesworth used to deal with people real roughly. George Stormont told me the story about how he went to the guy's house 
and, and dealt with him super hard, just real rough, and got back in the, the, the little trolley car that they were going to ride back to their, the parsonage or whatever it was, and he just wept the whole way. And he said, oh, Lord, why do I have to deal with people like that? Why is it that you, you have me deal with people like that? Why can't I be loving and kind like I see so many other people? Why, why do you have me do that? It wasn't something he did by nature. It wasn't something he did because he wanted to. He did it because it's the way God led him to do it, and it always brought results because it always identified, it always exposed somebody's spiritual pride and their unwillingness to change their thoughts, their attitude toward the things of God. And if you don't change your attitude toward the things of God, you can't learn and grow or receive from him. And I know that's what I'm doing sometimes. And I don't want to do it because I know it's going to make people mad. I've learned to get over it. But I know over and over and over again. And I've found so many times that some people that will come, they'll come for several weeks. Oh, they just love the church. They just love the church. And I'll hit their pet thing. And I know I'm stomping on their pet thing. Not because they've told me. I just know. And all of a sudden, I'm not such a great guy anymore. When what's really happening is God is trying to show them you're not always going to find somebody you agree with about every little thing. And sometimes the things you don't agree with are the things that God's trying to get you in line to renew your mind to the truth about. But that's the point where people pick up and go. That's the point where people take off. That's the point where submitting to spiritual authority becomes forget that. I'm going to go find somebody I agree with. And then, of course, the problem's always me. Well, Pastor Mike used to teach the word. But he took a wrong turn somewhere. Why? Because I stepped on their pet doctrine. And sometimes that's the very thing that God's trying to get you over in, in the good ground so that he can help you with. Now, I'll prove it to you in the next couple of verses. But, folks, the best God can do is use imperfect vessels. The point is this. It's the message that you're supposed to concentrate on, not the person. What if somebody falls? We all know of uh, big-name ministers that have fallen and people that have been scattered. Folks, you need to understand something. I've come to this realization, and I, I never say things like this, and if it wasn't written here and we weren't going through verse by verse, I wouldn't be saying it now. I have a, I, This is difficult for me because some of this stuff sounds self-serving, but it's what the Bible says, so i got to teach it. I come under more attack than you do. Paul warned us about this. He said to, to people, he said, don't, be, don't try to be people's master. I have never understood people that want to take responsibility on themselves to tell other people what they ought to do. Because somebody that's called in the Lord of God won't do that. Because they understand the responsibility. I don't want to be responsible for you doing what I thought you should do instead of what God told you to do. And God's never going to tell me what you ought to do before he tells you what you ought to do. Because God leads you by his spirit, not by your pastor. I'm not responsible for figuring out what you ought to do in life. People come and say, Pastor Mike, what should I ought to do? Pray. Find out from God what you should do. Read the Word and find out what the Word tells you to do. Now, if I can help you find out what the Word says, great. But I can't do your praying for you. And I'm not going to tell you what you ought to do in your life. But so many people want to do this. But, folks, I come under a greater attack because if the, if the, Lord, if, uh, if the devil can take me out in something, then he can hurt everybody that trusted in me. The concept is smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. So that's why you need to concentrate on the message. That's why you need to be aware. Paul asked the the church, pray for us. Why? Because they're under attack. I've got to deal with stuff. You have no idea what I have to deal with. You have no idea. It amazes me sometimes because... uh, 
Well, let me just let me just conclude it by saying this. I don't want to go any further with that. But what about when people fall? What about when people make mistakes? First time I ever saw Brother Hagin make a mistake, I thought heaven had come to an end. Because Brother Hagin was perfect. I, I was so afraid of Brother Hagin when I first got around him. I would pray. Every time I see him come to pray, oh, God, please don't show him anything about me. Please don't let him see who I really am. Please, Lord, don't let him read my mind. I had so much junk I was still trying to deal with. Please don't tell him. Don't tell him. Don't tell him. I was so afraid he could just see right through me. And he'd look at me like he could, you know. A lot of that was just messing with me, I found out later on. But I learned the difference between Brother Hagin and the man that stood in the office of the prophet. The man that stood in the office of the prophet, you could trust that no matter what because that was God working through him. Brother Hagin was just as human as the rest of us. He was just as subject to making mistakes as us. He's just as subject to, to stumbling when it comes to his love walk as the rest of us, although he had it down better than anybody I've ever, ever seen. But nobody's perfect. Nobody's infallible. But what about when people fall like that? Verse 8 is what Paul is, con- is telling us about in that regard. He said Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In other words, even if somebody that you have uh, are under their spiritual authority, if you see them make mistakes, you're following their faith, you see their imperfection, you may see them stumble and fall, you may see them blow up and, and make a, uh, a mess of everything that God's ever called them to. Jesus never changes. Now, we use verse 8 for healing. Jesus is the same yesterday and today forever. And that's true. If Jesus healed in his earthly ministry, he heals today because he never changes. But the context, the the specifics that he's talking about in verse 8 here in chapter 13 is that Jesus never changes. You don't have to be concerned about the imperfections of those who have authority over you. They are imperfect. They have flesh to deal with just like you do. But Jesus never changes. That's why we concentrate on the message, not the man. Because as messed up as I may, as much as I mess things up, the message is infallible. That's why I'm responsible to sticking with the truth. Folks, I know the doctrine works. I know the doctrine's true. We've proven that. Uh, uh, some weeks ago, I was telling uh, about uh, some of the, the stuff that we had with the church building project and stuff like that. And, uh, and there was somebody that was here in that service that, uh, uh, that, was, that was here during those days. Still a number of people that were, but this, uh, this one person sent me an email afterwards. We lost 60% of the people. We had 13 lawsuits going at one time. We lost several millions of dollars in this thing. And it just looked like it was an absolute failure. And, uh, and, and, and I shared some of the stories, shared some of the things that were going on several weeks back. And, uh, and later on in that week, this, uh, this one person in the church sent me an email and he said, Pastor Mike, he said, you talk about that. And, and it's, it, sometimes it sounds like you're ashamed of, of, of some of the failures and some of the ways that it went and stuff. He said, but coming from my perspective, I watched you. You always went back to the word. He said, 60% of the people may have left, but man, the 40% that were left here with you, we saw the word work. He says, so we don't look at that as a defeat. We look at that as a time where we found out the word works even when everything's going against you. And I thought, that's pretty cool. And that's what he's talking about in verse 7. Faith should produce results. doesn't mean you win every round, but you do win the fight. And if it takes a last second, last round knockout, you win the fight. Verse 9. Be not carried away with diverse and strange doctrines. The word strange is the word alien doctrines. 
Be not carried away with alien doctrines. What's going to keep you from being carried away with strange and alien doctrines? Submitting to spiritual authority and staying in church. He's just told these people in chapter uh, chapter 10, verse 30, verse uh, 25, I guess it is. He said, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. He's trying to get them in church. Why? Because that's where you're going to hear from the Holy Ghost. That's where you're going to hear from God. See, Paul is assuming, it's a good assumption, Paul is assuming that pastors, people that stand in the office of the pastor, are going to be teaching the truth of the word. And if they are, you're going to be hearing from God when they do. If you concentrate on the message, if you're not letting your mind wander. See, some people come to church and they're somewhere else. They're not remembering Pastor Mike. Literally, they're not concentrating on the message. So he said, be not carried away with diverse or strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats which have not profited them which have been occupied therein. What's he saying? Well, Romans chapter 14, verse 17 says, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. So he's saying, back to the legalism, he's saying meats are not going to help you. And remember, the law of Moses was all about what you could eat and what you couldn't eat. Remember, this was what Peter got carried away with. The Bible tells us about in Acts. It says when Peter came to Antioch, he saw the move of God. He saw the Gentiles and the Jews together in the church. It was a glorious thing. It was like the beginning in Jerusalem in Acts chapters 2, 3, and 4, and 5. It was wonderful. And he was enjoying that. He was sitting down and eating bacon with the Gentiles. Everything was just wonderful. No problem. And then Jews came from Jerusalem. Wondering, what is Peter delaying for? Why did he go down there and stay in Antioch so long? So when the Jews come from Jerusalem, Peter backs up. He separates himself from the Gentiles and goes sits over with the Jews. And Paul got so upset about this. He said that Peter's dissembling. Is the way the King James says, Peter's dissembling his actions toward the Gentiles were starting to even affect people's salvation. It was starting to affect their Christian life. So Paul got in his face. He said, Peter, you're a nut. You eat with the Gentiles when the Jews aren't around, but now the Jews show up and you say that it's not right to do. Well, why did you do it when they weren't here? Paul goes berserk over this thing. Why? Because this is the whole crux of legalism trying to strangle the church. And if it strangled the church in Antioch, what would be the result? The Holy Ghost would stop moving. So he said, don't be carried away with diverse and strange doctrines. Stay in church. Why? For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace. He's talking about the same thing. Being fed with the word of God causes your heart to be established in grace. Now, what does he mean by grace? Folks, Paul's ministry is one and only one thing, and that is the finished work of Jesus. So when he talks about grace, he's got to be talking about the finished work of Jesus. He's got to be talking about what the, the illustration that we used before. Jesus won the poker tour. He's got all the chips. You can't play unless you get in him. And you can't earn them. You can't buy chips. You can't buy anything with God. You can't work your way into anything with God. It's all about being in Him. So he says it's a good thing to be fed the Word of God, to submit to spiritual authority under somebody whose faith you can follow and that produces results. Even if you see their imperfections, Jesus never changes. The Word of God never changes. Don't be concerned about what you see me do or some mistake that I make. Don't be concerned about that. Just pray for me. It doesn't change the truth of the Word. And you can keep from being carried away with these wrong doctrines and stuff like this 
which so many people that refuse spiritual authority get themselves into because it's good to be established in the finished work of Jesus and not in the rituals of meats and all that other kind of stuff. Folks, God doesn't want you to be legalized in anything. That's why Paul said, Paul made some absolutely phenomenal statements writing to the church. He said, all things are lawful, but not everything is helpful. Think about what that means. All things are lawful. There is no action that takes me out of God's favor. Now, you could take that to an extreme. You could say, well, that means I could sin all I want to and get forgiven. Well, on face, at face value, that's true. But if you continue in that sin, then it's going to get a hold of you and it's going to cause you a problem. But he's literally saying, Paul does not hold back in any way whatsoever. He says there's nothing you can do that can take you out of God's favor. Well, that's sure different from what we heard in church. He said that doesn't mean you ought to do everything because not everything is helpful. Not everything is good for you. Not everything will contribute to your spiritual growth, your spiritual development. But he's literally saying there's nothing you can do. Folks, there's no mistake you've ever made. No matter how bad it's been, no matter what cause, what problems were caused by it, there's no mistake you've ever made that can take you out of God's favor. There's nothing that you can do that makes God mad at you. Nothing. So the idea that we've got to do things to make God happy is absurd. Totally absurd. God's already happy with you. He's made you free in Christ. You've been made complete in him. That's why you have the freedom to be a priest unto God, king and priest unto God. Amen? Well, we didn't get near as far as what I wanted to tonight, but we'll see if we can finish up next week. Why don't we all stand together? Hallelujah. Let's lift our hands and thank God for our freedom. Paul said not to use your liberty in Christ as an occasion to sin. Amen. So he expects right living from us. The Bible says we've been created unto good works, not good works to gain something with God, but good works because we're in Christ, because we have the character and the nature of God inside of us. Oh, thank you, Father, for our freedom that we have in Jesus. Thank you, Father, that we're free to love. We're free to show hospitality. We're free to pray. We're free in our marriage. We're free in our contentment, free to be content. Oh, Father, what a privilege it is to learn to be content in every situation. We're free to submit to spiritual authority, Father. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your goodness. What a privilege it is to be a believer in these last days. To trust in your word in the midst of perilous times. Strength-reducing days and times. Father, we believe these are the end times. We believe Jesus is coming soon. And it is our desire to manifest your love, your character, and your power in the earth before he comes. Thank you, Father, that you have promised us in these last days the silver and gold, the power and the glory. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.